0: Good evening. Welcome to our Thursday night Bible study. It was good to see some of you last Lord's Day morning and look forward to seeing some of you again this coming Lord's Day morning. We'll continue to live stream the service on Lord's Day morning, albeit tweaking the sound so it's better, especially in live. Um, and the, the sermon on Lord's Day morning will also be available afterwards on YouTube and on our webpage as well. will our Sunday afternoon services and our Thursday night Bible studies, both of which will be available online. Well, I've really enjoyed the study of James. I've fallen in love with the book all over again. I love this book. And we're in James 5, 19 to 20, just two verses at the end of the book. And I want you to also turn to Luke's gospel and chapter 8. I'll read that first. So Luke 8 and verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he, that's the Lord Jesus, said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some, went, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this this seed is the word of God. As for that, in the good soil there are those who hear in the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And just turn with me to our study in James. And uh, that's where we are studying the book of James. And we'll look at just the last two verses of the book. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner From his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The gospel is sown on four kinds of heart. First of all, there's the hard heart. That's in Luke 8 and verse 5. We just read it. Um, As he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. Now, for context, the farm fields in Palestine were long, narrow fields divided by paths That became as hard as rock from constant trampling and the heat of the sun. And when the farmer, God the Holy Spirit, sows the seed, God's word, on the path, human hearts, hard human hearts, it is trampled on and the birds eat it up. As Jesus explained in verse 12, The ones on the path are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. These are impenetrable hearts. These are hearts and minds that are blinded and shrouded in a materialistic fog. And Satan snatches the precious seed of the gospel from hardened hearts before it has a chance to land and to germinate and grow. Secondly, there is the second response is the is the shallow heart in verse six of Luke eight. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And uh, you got to bear in mind now that Palestine is covered in bedrock, and there's a thin coating of soil which enhances the sprouting of new seed because. The bedrock is quickly warmed by the sun and brings speedy growth. But these fresh shoots quickly die because the shallow soil doesn't have enough water. And Jesus makes the application so clear in verse 13. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But it has no root. They believe for a while. In time of testing, they fall away. Nothing is greener than a new convert. In fact, it may appear... Healthier than the other seed. Now that doesn't in any way diminish or depreciate emotion, because conversion must rejo- result in joy that can't be contained. But the problem with shallowness is that it has no roots, so in times of testing, falls away. So common today, especially as so much of what passes as theology is man-centered. It's about how we feel and. Christ is preached only with the emphasis on what he can do for us. Receiving him is doing him a favor. And this kind of shallow theology, it plays down sin and minimizes the holiness of God. And it doesn't produce solid, real converts. It produces bogus converts. And Jesus's exposition of the shallow heart is a warning to us all to honestly reflect on the reality of our conversion. Has the word really taken root or was it just a brief spurt and then nothing? The third kind of heart is the infested heart in verse 7. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. The seed of God's word falls on this thorn infested soil that strangles the beginning of new life. And verse 14 is the application as for those who fell among the thorns. They are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the threefold murderers of cares, riches, pleasures of life. Their fruit doesn't mature. That trio of murderers, cares, riches and pleasures, they strangle by the clutch of materialism. We just know it. We we can call it keeping up with the Joneses, if you like, buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And it's possible to sit in church for years and not to hear the word because our mind is always on the next, you know, the next deal or, you know, the next or worrying about ourselves. And the tell sign is that people never mature and in failing to mature, they don't produce fruit. If there's no fruit in our lives and if our focus is only on materialism, we're probably not even Christian. We've fooled others. More tragically, we fool ourselves. But finally, there's a fertile heart. Verse 8, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And verse 15 is the application, as for those in the good soil, they are those who hear in the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. True believers bear fruit. And the Lord Jesus adds in Matthew's account that the yield is a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. The the, First of all, inward fruit, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these inner fruits come into full bloom and produce the outward fruit that James emphasizes. So this panoramic significance of the four hearts exists in the mystery of the church. The church has three kind of unregenerate hearts in it. The hard heart, the shallow heart, the infested heart. And those with regenerate hearts, true believers, are fertile and fruitful. To be sure, there are degrees of fruitfulness and all believers struggle at times with hardness, shallowness and infestation. But God's word is what is rooted deeply. And there is an ongoing fruit. So we must bring this perspective from the Lord Jesus to James's exhortation about the danger of apostasy with which he closes his letter. And right from the word go, James has been concerned, hasn't he? That people within the church have true faith, that we don't just profess faith, we have faith. And James has shown us, hasn't he, that faith produces works that affects how we spend our money, how we relate to the poor, how we resist worldliness, how we use our tongue. And aberrations in any of these areas could indicate A bogus faith, the danger of apostasy. First of all, the possibility of apostasy there is in verse 19. And James graphically presents apostasy as a real possibility in that opening of verse 19. My brothers, if anyone from among you wanders from the truth. The Greek word for wanders is planio, from which we get planet, a heavenly wanderer. But James doesn't see this wandering as unconscious or absent-minded. He doesn't only see it as doctrinal wandering, but a wandering in lifestyle. The Hebrew mind, especially that of James, never separated the intellectual from the behavioral, the doctrinal from the moral, as the Greeks did. Truth was what people did. And their apostasy could be discerned either in doctrinal aberration or moral deviation. The Bible teaches that a moral deviation can affect one's doctrine. What I mean by that is thousands, don't they, change what they believe to accommodate their behavior. We want to do this. OK, we'll believe this. And thousands take up false doctrine, then apostatize in their actions. In the New Testament, we read of Demas who forsake, who forsake, pu- forsake, forsake. For- Forgot Paul for moral reasons, I beg your pardon. And on the other hand, Alexander the metal worker did Paul great harm because he objected to doctrine. As believers who care about the church, we ought to be sensitive to moral changes in our own lives without being judgmental in other people's lives too. Billy Graham said, no man can be truly converted to Christ who hasn't bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ, may have emotional, religious experiences. However, he isn't truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Saviour and Master. So there's the possibility, isn't there, of apostasy in verse 19. In verse, the end of verse 19 and verse 20 is the blessing of reclamation. James is concern isn't that we're just able to discern apostasy, but we do something about it. Verse 9, eight, back end of 19 to 20. Someone brings him back. Let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Spiritual reclamation, restoration covers a multitude of sins. Covering sins indicates forgiveness. A multitude of sins indicates the extent of forgiveness. It's always a multitude of sins that is covered. When I came to Christ, when I was brought to Christ, millions of sins were covered over. It was the same with you. I didn't come to Christ, of course. It was the Spirit who drew me. And this is viewed in the Bible as supreme blessedness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessing is accomplished when a sinner is turned from his error. God does this. God alone does it but he uses human instruments who love God and who love people. Love covers all sins. The covering of sins flows from the ultimate fact that turning a sinner back saves him from death. The act of saving someone from death has regularly invoked a lifetime of gratitude by the one saved. We think about it. Soldiers, ex-soldiers carry photos of somebody who saved them. Or we think of somebody maybe in the health service who saved us. But the saving act here is greater. It's a saving from spiritual death, saving a man, woman, boy or girl from an existence of body and soul in hell, an eternal separation from God. This is salvation from a horrifying existence that scripture describes in various ways, all of which are terrible. The unquenchable fire, their worm does not die. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The bottomless pit. To be part of saving one from spiritual death is the greatest thing a human being can do for another. If we were rich and able to give each other someone else the deeds to our house or our prestige or our bank account, that wouldn't come close to the marvels of being involved in saving a person from spiritual death. F.F. F. Bruce said at the end of his ministry, For many years, the greater part of my time has been devoted to the study and interpretation of the Bible in academic and non-academic settings alike. I regard this as a most worthwhile and rewarding occupation. There's only one form of ministry which I would rate more highly, the work of evangelists, to this I have not been called. To save someone from spiritual death is the greatest thing a human being can do for another. Whoever brings back a sinner... From his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5 verse 20. It's that motivation that compelled James to write his letter. That's why he was so hard hearted, hard hitting. Sorry. It's a warning to the hard hearts, to the shallow hearts, the infested hearts that are all in the church. It's a call for the church to practice a ministry of restoration, reclamation, And this ministry has five steps, and then I'll close. Number one, love. The church must engage in love instead of rejection. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I've known a person who has erred, hunted down like a wolf. He was wrong to some degree, but that wrong has been aggravated and dwelt upon. Till the man has been worried into defiance, the fault has been exaggerated into a double wrong, by ferocious attacks upon it. The manhood of the man has taken sides with his error because he has been so severely handled. The man has been compelled, sinfully I admit, to take up an extreme position and to go further into mischief because he could not brook to be denounced instead of being reasoned with. And when a man has been blameworthy in his life, it will often happen that his fault has been blazed abroad Retailed from mouth to mouth and magnified until the poor erring one has felt degraded and, having lost all self respect, has given way to far more dreadful sins. The object of some professors seem to be to amputate the limb rather than heal it. Wow. Does that describe your heart? That you want to make somebody pay? Or do you love? Love covers all sins. Do you want to see someone restored? Or do you want to see them pay for their wandering? This is really hard hitting from Charles Spurgeon. The object of some professors seem to be to amputate the limb rather than to heal it. Love covers all sins, not because our love can atone for them, but because love cares and maintains a relationship through which the grace of God will be pleased to work. Have you written anyone off? Love. Secondly, integrity. If we're to be used to reclaim another, we must possess what we want them to have. Paul said this in Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Integrity of heart. The authority. The authenticity of one's soul is seen in the eyes and heard in the tone of voice. Restorers are spiritual people. Thirdly, prayer. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. We must pray for those who err. Sadly, our words don't go to God, they go out in gossip. No, we should pray specific, regular, passionate prayers. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Fourthly, confrontation. The call to confront the sinner is expressed in scripture. Ezekiel 3.18, if I say to the wicked, you should surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn The wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. The wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Paul told the Thessalonians regarding a a disobedient believer to warn him as a brother. To the Ephesians, he gave his own example that, remember, for three years he hadn't ceased night or day to admonish them with tears. There are times when we, we must prayerfully confront and when we're called to confront, we do so relying on the wisdom and love of God. And fifthly, discipline, a last resort. The Lord Jesus instructs us in this process in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. There are times when we must do this for the sake of the wanderer's soul and the life of the church. The first five verses of 1 Corinthians 5. So commitment to the process of spiritual reclamation. Love plus integrity plus prayer Plus confrontation, plus discipline. All that says one thing. We love the church and we stand with James when he says, Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, it's been a wonderful book, the book of James. And I just want us to leave us with this one line May we live redemptive lives. Reclaiming wandering souls for Christ. Sone Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and our eternal good. Amen.